The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data. Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, a Ben J. Shap LLC production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to CMO Week on the MarTech Podcast. This week, we're talking to five CMOs to understand how they've navigated their way up the corporate ladder to become some of the most prominent marketers in the world. Today, we're going to continue CMO Week by learning about the skills accumulated and the lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on his career. Joining us today is Mike Litton. Mike is the Enterprise Chief Marketing Officer at Farmers Insurance, and he's also on the boards of two private equity boards, Medical Solutions and The Wine Group. Previously, Mike was also on the board of directors at Capella Education, Allen Edmund Shoe Company, and Pete's Coffee. So, Mike, welcome to the MarTech Podcast. It's great to reconnect and have you here on the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Looking forward to it. I'm excited to have you here. Let's start off by asking the same questions that we've asked all of our CMO guests. Let's start off by talking about how you got into marketing. How did you get into this profession? So I went to undergrad at Bowling Green State University and then straight to graduate school at Duke. And when I was coming out of Duke, I was really intrigued by both marketing and finance. And I was lucky enough to interview in both functions and get an offer from Procter & Gamble. And they actually let me see some of how they taught advertising at the time. And even though Procter was my lowest offer, I decided I had to go there for the training and the experience. So I went at the age of 23 from North Carolina to Cincinnati, back to Ohio, where I'm from, to join P&G in the Bar Soap and Household Cleaning Products Division. So there's an interesting trend that I've seen with the CMOs that we've interviewed for CMO Coaching Week is that so far of the interviews I've conducted, you're the fourth of four. Everyone started off in some sort of consumer packaged goods. Is that a product of the class of CMOs, how long it takes you to become a CMO, that in the late 70s to early 90s, that was what marketers did? Or were there other marketing jobs that you and your class of CMOs were choosing between? Well, Ben, when I think back about marketing then, those were viewed as the best training grounds for marketing. And I believe there's a number of factors that went into that. One, you were pretty much the center of a lot of the work. So it wasn't that you were just doing kind of the marketing that the consumer saw. You were also in charge of product development, profit, a lot of things. And while you weren't always in charge of that, 
you were responsible for it and touching it. So you were very much in what was a general management role versus a pure marketing role. And P&G at the time just trained the heck out of you as well. So you were constantly being improved (laughs) or told how you could do better, usually and almost always in a very positive and productive way, but it was relentless training. So you realized a lot about how much you always had to learn. The other thing I'll say about consumer goods is it's pretty much a brutal fight, particularly at that time at the grocery store or a Walmart where all your products and all your competitors are on display. And the way you're going to win that fight is by having a good product with a good price and really good marketing around it, including the packaging, because the consumer is going to spend maybe one to two seconds paying attention to that. So marketing was really a massive differentiator there where the consumer's voting pretty much every time they're in the store. It's interesting thinking about life before sort of the digital revolution where all of the products have to be picked up at a physical location. So they're all put in the same place and people are going to the grocery store like they do today. But all of the other things that you can buy aren't getting shipped to your doorstep. And I know that's a relatively new concept. But what that means, or at least what I'm hearing, is that the marketers were essentially at the center of the organization as opposed to being kind of a tangential function. Have you seen that shift? And do you think about the role of marketing being different today than what it was back in your P&G days? So there's a couple of things I would say about marketing just in general, and then from a consumer goods career evolution standpoint. The first thing I'll say is marketing's kind of always been at the edge where the brand meets the consumer and the company. So the marketer is almost always at the front end of the communication to the customer in some way. And that kind of pushes you to be paying attention to how consumers are absorbing media, absorbing messaging and buying things, whatever they may be. And if you think about marketing, the amount of new tools that come into marketing every year. If you just go back in time, you think, gosh, there was TV and then there was cable TV and then you could do direct mail by zip code. And then there's digital and mobile and AI now and everything else and all the different tools you could use. Those tools come in play at very rapid fire. And your job is to figure out how to use them for your business. That's never changed in marketing. What has changed is kind of the role of marketing. And I will say marketing is, without a doubt, the broadest, particularly a C-level marketing job is the most inconsistently defined job in all the C levels. You pretty much know what your CFO does or your CIO. Your marketer could range from, hey, they just do the comms part of marketing. So they are really involved in the design of the product and all of the customer interfaces for the whole company. I think marketing has evolved to where it's kind of inconsistent as to what the marketer does. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that as somebody that's a little earlier in their career, you know, I'd say that I'm mid-level in my career, that I can feel the changes in what the responsibility of a marketer is. And maybe that's because I'm a little bit closer to the operational level, but the skill set that goes into being a marketer is so different now than it was even when I started my career 10, 15 years ago, where now the best marketers on the operational or mid-level 
are data-driven, have great technical savvy, but also have the ability to balance creative and understand consumers. And I feel like the original iteration of the marketer that I think of, the classic marketer, is the madman style marketer who was very creative-driven and was based on the humanities, and now it's become very technical. Have you felt that shift at the C-level as well, or is that just something that's kind of down the career path a little? I'll tell you the shift I saw, which is to get into Procter, you had to pass a math test. And my vision of marketing is it's 70% math, 30% creative. And you got to know when the creative's driving and when the math is driving. I will say, as you look at the way some industries have evolved, particularly in technology and everything else, a lot of times the marketer's role is pretty much defined as acquisition or ROI on performance marketing. And that's a great marketing path, but I think it's kind of narrow sometimes versus the way some of the consumer goods companies trained you a long time ago, where you were very involved in the entire customer experience, including the product design. And I have a tendency to shy away from marketing jobs where I don't have any say in the product or the service I'm working on, and people are just throwing it over the wall, going to figure out a way to sell it or figure out a way to get customers into the game. Because I think that is not how the world buys stuff, but I think that's sometimes how marketing is managed by various companies. Yeah, I've definitely seen that mostly working at early stage companies that there's a sense, and we talk a lot about this on the podcast, the difference between growth and between marketing. And I try to draw the delineation of what I think of traditional marketing being more brand centric and growth being the use of technology and the understanding of data and sort of the manipulation of the marketing funnel, mostly in a digital sense. I think that at the early stage, the smaller companies, the newer companies, there is definitely a shift towards trying to find people that are understand growth. And as they mature, there then becomes this need for more of the traditional marketing. That said, I want to talk a little bit more about your career. You started off at Procter & Gamble and you got this broad experience really in what is almost a general manager role. But at the time, that was kind of a traditional marketing role. Tell me a little bit more about some of the other experiences earlier in your career when you were an individual contributor or even a new manager that shaped the direction that you had and the type of leader that you are today. So I was pretty lucky because I was brand manager at Procter at 26. And when I left Procter, I went to Progressive Insurance where I was a, I managed the state and they actually Progressive moved me into various roles, including running a business as a general manager and also running call centers. So I've kind of been lucky enough to have people management since a really long time ago. I think what happened in my career, though, because I went from Procter to Progressive to James River Paper, where I was a marketer and a general manager. And I did a little private equity thing at Remington, which was not a great career move for me. And then to Best Buy as their first ever CMO. That kind of moving around for my career allowed me to think about businesses differently and consumers differently versus just the pure Procter way, where I gained a lot more respect for other functions, how they all work together, and how things got managed. What I'm curious about is when I look at your resume or your LinkedIn profile, you're a general manager and you're obviously very quickly moved up from being an individual contributor into a vice president role. I'm curious to know how the progression of your career and going from being somebody that's relatively early but well-educated in their career into someone with a lot of responsibilities shaped your career. And you mentioned it led to a difficult time in Remington. Was that a situation where you weren't for the role or you just made the wrong decision and picked the wrong company? 
I made the wrong decision. Okay. I guess what I would say about the career is I didn't plan it this way at first, but changing industries helped me a lot in a couple of ways. One, it allowed me to see the tools that work across any industry, but it also gave me a look at there's different cultures and there's different ways to measure. And there's an awful lot of different functions that matter and how to integrate and understand and learn from those functions about what was really going on in the marketplace and the company versus to always approach it the proctor way. I also learned a lot about, it's one thing to be a good marketer, but one of the biggest challenges of marketing is to be able to translate what you're doing in marketing to your company in a way they can hear you. And at Proctor, everyone understands marketing. At a lot of companies, marketing is doing different stuff and the natural language of the company is more driven by financials or production or other different measures. And that ability to translate, I think, only comes from practice. That's really interesting. You know, at Proctor, a company that has marketers at the center of the organization, it makes sense that there's a common language. And then you moved around to a couple different organizations that obviously had a different approach and you end up not being a company in an, in an organization that is made up and comprised primarily of marketers where you're one of the very few. Talk to me a little bit about your role. Eventually, you make the jump over to being the, you mentioned the first CMO at Best Buy. And that was a transformational time for the Best Buy company where the brick and mortar stores were consolidating and a lot of important brick and mortar stores really went out of business right around the time that Best Buy was taking over. Talk to me about that experience working at the company as it's going through its growth phase and how do you view what your role was? So I got to Best Buy, it was about eight or nine billion. And when I left, it was over 30 billion. It was still the heyday of big box retail. However, digital and e-commerce were coming on and there's a lot of debates of how do you use this tool and how do you manage this capability? So I feel I got to learn a lot. The first thing I always do is figure out how the company makes money and then how it sells ideas and then how it invests capital. And when you look at retail, there is more short-term focus because if you have a really bad short-term run, you don't get a long-term run. I feel like that's the case with most chief marketing officers in general. The lifespan of the CMO just isn't very long. It isn't very long, but this isn't even about marketing. This is about the business. Because mm -hmm. at Procter, the long-term always wins. You can have a three-year plan. In retail, if you don't make money in a couple of years, you run out of working capital. Right. The overhead is expensive because you have to pay for the land. Yeah. The overhead is expensive. You got to pay your labor. You can't invest in new things. So... Short term at the time takes on a lot of importance. Mm -hmm. You start missing it. The company starts missing its numbers. It's not like if I miss the numbers on my brand at Procter and there's a million other brands to back me up. Usually one big brand and the job one is you got to make the short term numbers. And as a marketer, if you come in and you're blowing up the short term numbers to make the long term, you're not going to last long and you probably shouldn't last that long. So the thing I learned a lot at Best Buy was I got to make today's numbers why I protect tomorrow's future. And that means I have to invest in the tools and the team to do both. And I have to think through how I'm going to do that with the company so the company can understand why I'm investing in things like at the time reward zone or some of the brand work we did, but making sure that I'm assisting the company in every possible way to make their short-term financials. 
So this is hindsight, but you had to have done a good job because eventually the big box retailers have primarily dried up, right? There is no good guys. There is no more Circuit City to speak of. And Best Buy is still a prevalent player selling consumer electronics. So talk to me about what the strategy you implemented was to not only hit your short-term numbers, but how are you investing in the long-term? Because clearly that was successful. So when I went to Best Buy, Best Buy was beginning to come out of what had been a tough time. I feel very fortunate to have been hired then. And that was late 1998. And I think the company had a great operating model and a lot of great leaders. And my goal was to just add marketing into that mix and to build up some tools that I thought the company would need for the long term. And my vision building the department was, I don't want a retail-only marketing department. I want to blend uh, retail marketers with people that also understood service and people that also understood consumer goods. Minnesota is a great place for that because of all the companies there. So you could blend in a lot of analytics and creatives and everybody else from what is a great place to hire marketers into the department. That's how we went about doing marketing up there. So if I think back about what happened at Best Buy, there was the geek squad. There's a service component, whether that was something that you're responsible for. But to me, I think about the brand is obviously there primarily relying on selling consumer electronics. And there are also consumer packaged goods. And now you could buy your popcorn and your movies and your DVDs and media. There's also dishwashers. I don't know if that was there when you were. Oh, yeah. But it seems like the brand sort of differentiated to buy all of the consumer electronics or anything you can plug in, plus the media that you needed to use it at the same time, and then be able to service it. Here's how we did the strategy at Best Buy, which was, if you think about all the stuff Best Buy sells and pretty much any retailer sells, you can almost buy everything somewhere else. And Best Buy, we had a bunch of departments, home office, which was computers, basically home entertainment, which is driven by TVs, at the whole phone area, appliances, which is washers and dryers, and then content, which is anything you can put into those things that is going to work. We also bought Geek Squad, which at the time was a very small startup and expanded it in a two-year period into a massive idea. But I think when you look at Best Buy absent Geek Squad, what you have is a pretty great assortment of stuff, but that assortment of stuff is available in a lot of places. Our vision in marketing was we are going to be the most fun place to shop. And that means you can play with the stuff. The stores are going to be playing music and movies all the time. It's going to be fun because when you come from where I came from, which is consumer goods and insurance and some other places, you go to a Best Buy store and you watch people at the time, they could not wait to take the product out of the store and plug it in and play it or use it, whether that was Sony PlayStation, a new TV or their computer or anything. So the whole strategy was built around the actual enjoyment of the product is going to start before you even get to the store. You just want to think about it. And we are going to make the stores as fun as possible. And if you went into a Best Buy store, then we tried to make them really fun. They were loud. There was a lot of activity. People were drawn to the TVs or at Best Buy radio going, there's a lot of action. And if you wanted to play the games or touch stuff, you could. So it was experiential. It was a different type of shopping experience. Oh, yeah. And we had the whole thousands of possibilities, get yours and turn on the fun campaigns that were really driven by the same thing, which is you want to be in the store. You want to buy the products and then you want to use them. So 
let's see if we can transfer all that energy to you before you actually buy the product so that the store is already anticipating you using the product. And that was how we designed a lot of the marketing. And then we let a lot of humor come into the marketing, including how we did the circular and everything else. We tried to put as much irreverent fun into the concept as possible because we wanted to be kind of your smart friend, meaning you want to come over to our store and hang out because it's cool and it has stuff you want and you get to start actually using and picking the products that are right for you without having a big barrier between you and the product, which in our mind, the store should have been an amplifier of the whole purchase versus a barrier to the purchase. Right. We tried to differentiate ourselves that way. Then we actually had a bunch of math behind that. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Mutinex, ready to take your team from I think to I know. Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, the marketing mixed modeling platform that makes measuring ROI fast, easy, and cost-effective. Request a demo at mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Time for a one-minute break to hear from our presenting sponsor, Mutinex. In 1919, John Wanamaker said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know which half. Well, the advertising landscape has changed since then. And instead of reaching your audience on two channels, you're probably reaching them on 20. Turns out John didn't know how easy he had it. But that doesn't mean that you should give up on striving towards marketing effectiveness. No matter how complex your marketing strategy is, Mutinex Growth OX is the market mix modeling platform that measures the impact of marketing on your bottom line. Mutinex's market mix modeling platform calibrates your insights against the latest market conditions so you can make media and marketing investment decisions confidently and quickly. Ready to take your team from I think to I know? Then join brands like Samsung, ING, and Asahi who make better marketing decisions with Mutinex. Mutinex Growth OX, your best decision starts here. To learn more about Mutinex, go to mutinex.co. That's M-U-T-I-N-E-X dot co. Okay, here's the rest of today's interview. So talk to me a little bit about the experience as you worked at Best Buy and you become the chief marketing officer for the first time. What do you see the difference between some of the leadership roles that you had and being in the executive chair, being the head honcho of a department? So one of the things about marketing is you're managing the marketplace, you're managing your team, and then you're also managing the company because you are at that front edge of the technology, the customer, and the brand or the company, if you will. And you're trying to actually build tools that the company is going to use in the future in a way that the company understands them. And often those tools have to integrate. For example, at Best Buy, we built the reward zone, which is in partnership with the CIO built on a big centralized database. So you got to convince the company that's a good idea versus just do the marketing. And that means you have to have kind of a story for the company that the company buys. Yeah, I'm going to let you do the short-term stuff and I'm going to partner with you to build the long-term stuff. And that means you have to bring the company along with your strategy. You can't just show up with great creative and think that solves the day. That's a small piece of the job. 
that's kind of the definition of being, I guess, a C-level executive is that your work is as much working with your cross-functional partners as it is creating and implementing the strategy. If you think about marketing, one of the things I like to think about is marketing is like an iceberg. And everyone sees the top of that iceberg, which is almost always the brand logo, the television or the YouTube or your social media or some of the flashy, cool stuff you may do. Below that is a lot of stuff that makes that iceberg bigger or not that people don't see, which would be your database, your customer insights, your research, your financials, your ROI calculations how the team works with stuff, your basic infrastructure, IT support. Nobody sees that. They only see the top of the iceberg. They don't see below the water. All they want to talk about usually is the top of the iceberg because it's cool. Right. And it's visible. And that's one of the reasons why marketing is attractive to a lot of people is you're working on something that other people can see. Yeah. But the other thing about marketing is everyone can see everything you and everybody else does. It's like major league managers. Everyone has an opinion and they could manage the Giants or the Yankees. The real issue is you have to do it, but you have to also be building out the farm system and everything else. But back to the iceberg analogy, Mm -hmm. you got to spend a lot of time on the underpinnings of that iceberg. And one of the biggest underpinnings is the company supporting your long-term build out of capabilities because you can't just show up and go, oh, I'm going to have a master data mart and I'm going to start a loyalty program tomorrow. That's going to take a long time. So as you think about what you're building, a lot of that is based on customers, your understanding financials, and your ability to bring the company along in your story, or all you're basically doing is hoping the top of that iceberg floats without a very big bottom, and it hardly ever will do that. Right. So eventually, you move on from Best Buy, and you work on eBay. Again, a little bit of a departure because you're not in the retail space. Now you're in a purely digital role. What was the transition like moving from Best Buy to eBay, specifically talking about moving towards an e-commerce business, something that's online, not offline? First, I always think whenever you change companies and industries, for sure, you always know there's a bunch you don't know. And I thought I knew a reasonable amount about .com because of bestbuy.com, but it's different when your only customer interface is just your digital space. So I felt I had to go to school on what it's like to be a digital-only play because it was different. I think the transition was, I had a lot to learn, and I'm thankful that a lot of eBay people took time to teach me. So at eBay, you started off not actually in the chief marketing officer role. You were working in marketplaces and adjacencies in really a general management role. Just so everybody here that's listening to the podcast understands, tell us what marketplace adjacencies is and what was that role like? So marketplace adjacencies was anything that wasn't eBay. So that wasn't pure eBay. It was half.com. eBay Motors was in there. eBay Canada was in there. Stores and pro stores were in there. And it was more of manage the business that is outside of eBay. It was a great learning for me. And then after a while, they asked me to be CMO, which I did. And I think the whole digital only thing was a fabulous learning for me. Yeah, it sounds like the experience going into a general management role and managing multiple smaller businesses allowed you to immerse yourself in the digital industry. And eventually, when you were ready, it was time to be the CMO. You're working in a different organization now, which obviously has a digital component, but again, a very different industry. So I see a connection between how you got into Best Buy from consumer packaged goods and you had an understanding of retail. And I see how you get from 
Best Buy to eBay because it's commerce and you were working in selling products. Farmer seems like a very different business to me. Talk to me about how you decided to make that career leap to that type of industry. You know, it seems like a very different type of business. And what is your experience like at Farmer's? Well, first, the farmer's job, the CMO or the marketing organization includes digital, not just digital marketing, but running the site. So we have a bunch of things in marketing, which are all consumer-based, including digital itself. So we have IT partners that we work with, but we're responsible for the site from a design and consumer perspective, in addition to the marketing. And I got this job because of Facebook and a car accident, basically. You got to tell us that story. So when I was at eBay, I'm one of the first people, you know, on Facebook, because you're always trying to be on the new stuff. Right. And I got this connection from a friend I had known at Progressive, who was running an insurance company in Florida at the time, named Jeff Daly. This was great, because at the beginning, I think it's 2006 or seven, there's nobody on Facebook. So you could say, oh, I'll accept any friend request I get, because I want to try this new tool. So I accept Jeff's friend request. And then he actually posts that his company is bought by farmers and he's moving to LA. And this is 2007 or eight. Anyways, as time progresses, I leave eBay and I wrote a column for Forbes for a year, just Forbes.com. And I post those stories on Facebook and Jeff reads all those and he comments on them, making little witty comments like, Linton, this is a great story. Makes a lot of sense. Who is writing your stuff? <laughs> and I said something equally funny back. And Some guy from Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now in the Bay Area and he's in L.A. And he emails me and says, hey, if you're in L.A. or I'm in San Francisco, I'll buy you dinner. And I say, great. We both know this will never happen given the size of the cities. But I think it's a really nice offer. Mm-hmm. As the market has melted down with the financial crisis and everything, my carrier makes me nervous. So I shop because my carrier was one of the insurance companies that almost went out of business. So I shop and I move all my stuff to farmers. And then I join a startup because I'm just having fun. And I'm driving the startup one day and it's like six months after I switched to farmers and I hit a semi on the 101 near Redwood City and it smashes a lot of my 2003 Explorer. Yeah. Got a flat tire, my door smashed, my mirrors ripped off, but I'm fine. I call in the claim like I'm supposed to. And I say to myself, I should open a back door on this in case it goes sideways. And Jeff had been a really great claims guy at Progressive. So I Facebook him. I don't call him and say, hey, I'm going to test your claim service. And he Facebooks right back. Anyways, this goes on for a couple of days. And each day is like, hey, how's it going? Finally, on day four, I say, I'm kind of frustrated because it's a 2003 Explorer. I'm uninjured. The semi that struck me is uninjured. And you guys should fix this a total of the car, but I'm kind of frustrated. And P.S., I'm costing you even more money because I have a rental car. He says, do you mind if I get involved? That's all Facebook. Mm-hmm. I say, I don't care who's involved. I just really like the car. Two days later, three people meet me to give me the car. I think that is really a lot of people for like $6,000 worth of damage. Right. And I go back to my house and I Google him and I say, hey, I wonder what he's doing. And it turns out he's the named rising CEO of Farmers, <laughs> which is a $20 billion company, not that small. And then he Facebooks me after he checks on the car. And then he says, hey, will you talk to us about the CMO job? <laughs> right. and I said, I never do that again. I don't want to leave my boards and I can't move. Uh-huh. And he Facebooks back. I can work around two of those three things. I came down and met with him and everybody else. And I thought, you know, it's an interesting industry pivoting a lot on marketing and digital highly competitive, spending tons of money in the marketplace. This is a really good fight. I should be in it. So that's how I got the job. 
we can do an entire episode on marketing in the insurance space. And I think it's fascinating. You know, my understanding is a lot of it is driven by television, a lot of branding in terms of the marketing. The real big question, and this is my big gotcha for the entire interview is did you have to pay more when J.K. Simmons won his Oscar? Because your campaign is we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. And he was already doing those ads when he won an Oscar, right? Yeah. So we really respect J.K. He likes us. We like him. He's a fantastic actor. Oh, yeah. I wish I had the power to plant Neil Patrick Harris singing the jingle on the Oscars, (laughs) but we did not. That was spontaneous. I will say this about the category. It is a heavily, heavily market category, spends a lot more than beer spends, and it's a great place to test your marketing chops. So it's interesting that when I think about your career arc, you started in what I would consider to be a traditional marketing background for the time. You moved around a fair amount. You worked at a big and rising company that was innovative, and you got a chance to, like you said, test your marketing chops working at Best Buy, moved to eBay, you learned digital. And then you said, I'm not going to be a CMO anymore until the right opportunity came along. So what was it that made you say I was going to take a break from being a CMO? And what got you back into the game? So I will tell you what always gets me in the game and why I pick various jobs. I don't look so much at the industry versus the opportunity. I think the opportunity for me is, can I do something that matters? Can I do something that's fun? And do I have a chance to actually make changes that will matter to the marketplace and to me? And I think those are not driven by industry as much as they are driven by situation. And you want to go to a place where you think, I could make a difference, have fun doing it, and like the people I work with. And that's kind of when I have veered off that in my past as a reason to go, like if I pick a place because I don't want to move or something, that has not worked for me. What has worked for me is... I go to where I think the opportunity will be good for me, good for the company and fun. And also where I'm going to do something new in a way that I'll probably learn something and while it might stress me out, I'll be better for it in the long run. It seems like something that's important to you is going to a role that you're excited about. And when you're making decisions, like you mentioned, I, I don't want to move, I have to take a job, that those are the ones that haven't worked out as well. Well, I think you always want to have passion for the work and passion for the team. When you let things get in the way of that, or you work past your passion, you start doing worse work. And I think that's bad, surely, for your company and your people, but also probably for you. And one of the best things, I think, is sometimes you're stressed with the job. You have to make hard choices. Things aren't always easy. But when you look at it on balance, are you having a fun in the job that you think, yeah, this is kind of fun and I'd do it again, or overall, I'd like it. You have to pay a tax for all jobs that some of it isn't always the most fun. But in general, you want the fun to outweigh the tax. And I try and pick in a place where I think, yeah, I'm pretty certain that the taxes is worth being paid because the overall benefit I'm getting and the fun I'm having in the job is overwhelming the tax you have to pay. I think that's one of the things is, you know, someone who has never been a CMO before, maybe someday down the road, I find that opportunity and feel like it's the right one. But there's always the trade-off that from a lifestyle perspective, when you are in a position that is volatile, I think that CMO roles, you know, it's one of the reasons why there is the CMO coaches, which is the sponsor of this episode, is that CMO roles don't generally last very long. I think the average CMO is in a job two years or less or something absurd like that. But for people that are trying to learn what it means to be a CMO, we've talked a lot about what the tactical skills are and how to work with your team. 
One thing we haven't talked about at all this week is the lifestyle of being a CMO and how do you balance the stress and the demands on you as a person? And what are some of the perks and benefits that come along with the role? Can you just tell us a little bit about the lifestyle as a CMO? I like the job because I think it's really fun. Not all parts of the job is fun, but you're always forced to learn new technology, learn new shopping behaviors. Competitors are always doing something new. I like that. There's a lot of times in this CMO gig, for the most part, where every day is a Saturday versus, oh my God, I'm dragging myself into work. I hardly ever think that. So the lifestyle is what you think it is. And you can always, in any job, work 24-7. I don't even think like that. I think this is a really fun job. I'm glad I get to do it. Sometimes it sucks up a lot of time, but in general, it's been an okay balance for me. I think all my jobs have had some element of stress. But if you don't have some stress in your job, it's usually uninteresting. I understand the passion for the function of marketing. I believe in that. I'm doing a marketing podcast. I mean, I am a marketer and I think everybody that listens to this show, or at least the vast majority of them are. I think my question is really when you're an executive of a company that is that large, there are trade-offs there. And I'm curious to know what's that really like? You've risen the ranks and you've gotten to the top and become a CMO. And what are the trade-offs of being a C-level executive as opposed to what's interesting about marketing? Hey, look, I can do five episodes of podcasts a week because there's always new topics and always people doing innovative things. I don't know what it means to be a C-level something. And in your case, a marketer, tell me about what the lifestyle is like there. I don't think about it as different than when I was a brand manager or something. I think it's like, yeah, you get to do bigger or more stuff. But I do think as you get to the C-level gig, you got to be good at what you do, but you also got to be good at collaborating with other people and even more important, just understanding other functions and the business. Because your job is not just to do the marketing, it's to create a marketing environment so your team can do what it needs to do in a way that helps the marketing, but also helps the company. So I think the interfaces are different at the C-level. But I've never felt my lifestyle has been that awful different other than maybe you make some bigger decisions and more people peck at you a little bit in the media or whatever. But I've never thought, oh, I'm a C-level, so everything is different. I thought it's been kind of fun work that I like doing and some different responsibilities. But it's not like I think, oh, my gosh, I'm a C guy. It's honestly a relief to hear you say that. And on the flip side, I'm disappointed that your answer wasn't, hey, riding in corporate jets is really fun. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got to ride in the Proctor jet when I was young, and there's a lot better gigs to the job. Secretly, this whole line of questioning is really just to ask about airplanes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mike, I appreciate all the advice. And as much as I kid about being on the corporate jet, I'm grateful that you have taken the time to talk to us about what life is really like as a CMO and about your experiences. Before we let you go, any words of advice for the people that are aspiring to be CMOs that where you can reflect on some of your experiences and try to point them in the right direction? Be good at marketing, but also be good at business. Have the broadest possible lens you can have on business. Don't just be the marketing person. And find people that tell you the truth about what you're not good at. And don't defend, listen really hard. And then the third thing is always find some skill you don't get, even if it's not in marketing, and then try and at least get competent at it, whether that's variations of finance or capital spending or how the company accounts for stuff or different channels. 
because in the end, you're going to run up against a lot of great marketers. And one of the differentiators will be, what do you know in addition to that, that makes you better, particularly at the C-level and collaborating, interfacing, understanding, and communicating. Sounds like learning more than marketing is part of the job of the executive level, the C-level marketer. And with that said, that wraps up this episode of CMO Week on the MarTech Podcast. Thanks again to Mike Linton for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Mike, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can send him a tweet at Michael A. Linton, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-A-L-I-N-T-O-N. If you're a subscriber to the MarTech Podcast, thank you for being a member of our community. We always want to hear from you, so we created benjshap.com slash question, where you can send us your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can also reach out on social media. My handle is benjshap on LinkedIn and on Twitter. It's B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. If you haven't subscribed yet and you want a weekly stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we've got great episodes lined up, including tomorrow's episode, which is another special guest from the CMO Coaches. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks again to Mike Linton for joining us. And until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy. Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.